Hello and welcome to Out Loud. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Today on the show, we have a very special live episode. Recorded at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee just last month, I had the chance to speak with season one guests Zach Eccleston, Maria Machonsky, and Lee Cato about the importance of storytelling for LGBTQIA people of faith. We catch up with where they have been since their episodes from 2018, from storytelling projects of their own to changes in how they view their faith and their communities today. Hearing their voices reminded me once again that our stories are really never completely finished. But before we dive in, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to our Patreon supporters who are helping finance the production of this season. If you like what you hear, become a patron. At just $15 a month, you can get exclusive access to unedited episodes of shows just like this one. And now, let's hear from our panel. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. And thank you for joining us for a special live show here at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Uh, First up, she's the organizer of this year's Out in Front Conference here at Vanderbilt. She was raised Catholic and recently quoted in the National Catholic Reporter about LGBT vocations in the church. And this semester, she submitted her thesis on a queer ethics of liberation, queer Catholic ethics of liberation. It's Maria Machonsky. Next, we have the very first person I interviewed on the show. You know him either from his starring feature in the boudoir exhibit here um, or his fierce Instagram game. Um, He has also just got back from uh, part of the Reformation Project's 2019 um, Leadership Cohort Summit. Um, It's Zach Eccleston. And last but not least, he is pursuing ordination in the Presbyterian Church USA. He's a musician also has a strong Instagram game, and we both share a deep devotion to Casey Musgraves. It's Lee Cato. (laughs) To get started, I want to go back to when your first episode came out and um, just ask you, how did it feel to hear your story back for the first time? Whoever wants to go first. I I can go first. I've had the longest to process. so it, it was really cool for me. We recorded my episode a long time before it came out. Um, at this point, it's been over a year since we recorded it. Did we... Was it... It was December of 2017. Yeah. And then it came out in, what, like June? In end of May, early January. End of May yeah. in 2018. And so it was about six months um, from recording to when I finally, like heard it in its full capacity um and it was a really neat experience to hear my story not from inside my own mind um to to hear it externalized and also thankfully edited Uh, (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) um and directed because most of the time I'm very much stuck in the cycles of thought that I get caught in all the time Um, focusing on specific things and having questions that were directed my way um, was really helpful to be able to process and present it in a way that I felt did honor to to the things that I've gone through and the place I've come to now um, which now is very different because it's been like a year and a half since it's been recorded but hearing it back and and having something that I could show to the world as well and, and present was 
very moving and I think gave a, a really nice uh, concrete nature to feeling I have progressed through my life and I have made it through things that were hard I've come out I won't say the other side because I don't think there's ever like another side I think we're continually evolving and changing but to see that I, I have come out of things and, and including the closet um, <laughs> and and that was very healing. I'll go. Um, I think that when I sat down with you, that was the first time I'd ever actually like told my story yeah. instead of just living it. Um, and so it was a listening to it was a very strange experience. Like, oh, that is how I really feel about it. I kind of uh, didn't know how I felt until I got in the room. Um, and I think thinking about how long it took for yours to come out. Like, six months is a long time in gay time, y'all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, a lot can happen. Um, a lot did. Yeah, and a lot has happened. So even just between the time we recorded and when I heard my podcast episode, I feel like a lot had changed. Um, and I don't think that as a queer Catholic person I've ever been given really venues where I can go back and think through um, okay, you know, how did this impact me formally? Um, and so listening to it was another experience of getting to think through again more and more layers um, and trying to listen to it again before this this recording was another experience of um, uncovering more and more layers of this process. You know, it's not a one and done deal. I think that's what it, it taught me. Yeah. I'll be honest and say I don't like hearing myself um, speak, especially through audio. So I only listened to it one time, and that was the first time it came out. Um, but when I listened to it back, I was reminded of how uh, of how my upbringing has, although it was, I was raised very conservative in a very rural part of South Carolina, and um, I realized how much that had impacted me in my life and how much I have gleaned from it, um, even in my, my story of coming out and what I want to do in the future. And being reminded of that was, um, of my rootedness was very powerful for me to hear myself say. Uh, and yeah, and that was the first time I had ever like recorded that was like permanent of, I was like, oh shit, this is like permanent. <laughs> People are going to listen to this um, on the podcast. And, and so that was really daunting, but I also think it was, it was really good for me to kind of really process my coming out experience, which is ongoing. I think um, specifically now I am married and coming out to your, in, like, being gay and having in-laws, that, that, that's a whole other ball game. So it's like we're coming out all over again as a married gay couple. and Because um, when you start dating somebody and when you marry somebody, it's a lot different um, than just saying you're gay. When it actually is in practice, that's when it hits the fan. So, um, so it's really interesting to, to kind of hear um, my rootedness, but it really was helpful to kind of um, – to hear it back and, you know, like Zach said, just kind of out of your own mind. Um, and I also rambled a lot during my <laughs> podcast, so I'm sorry. 
if, you, if it was an editing nightmare. <laughs> I, I, I took care of you. Good. Good. <laughs> no, I, I think just to add what you said, that sense of permanence of like, oh, I've said this into yeah. the universe and it's recorded now. Yeah. Even though I'd said it so many times to so many other people, I was like, yeah, this is how I feel. Like I'm a very matter of fact person. Having it recorded somewhere where other people can access it is a whole nother ball game. Yeah, and especially considering Maria's point of uh, six months is a long time in gay time, it's very true because only so much of my life has been lived mm -hmm. claiming that identity. And so I am learning so much about it all the time. Um, and so even though it's very permanent and I don't think, maybe like 75% of it is still like, yeah, I'm very much about that. Um <laughs> It's still nice to have this this thing that I can look back on and say, oh, that's, I, I know who he is, and I, mm. I love who he was, um, and I'm thankful for who he became as well. Mm. I, I love that you guys are saying that because I think, um, I think that is the hardest thing about storytelling is that you, yeah, you put it out there and it's, and it's just out there, but it's, um, I think it's really important I, I i did a workshop a few months ago where i asked folks um what was your earliest memory of church and um and just like what what, what comes to mind when i say that and it was specifically to a group of lgbt folks and i didn't realize until i was like in the midst of asking that question like what kind of question i was asking but i was inviting folks to like access a part of their faith that like may or their their upbringing that maybe they didn't want to go there or and and so I think what I keep learning as I'm, I'm from you guys and from other people I've interviewed is that like how important it is for us to like claim that that past self and be like yep that's where I was not gonna be too ashamed of it but that's where I was um, and in the process I think we start to learn kind of what of our faith tradition we can like cling to to like what 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 gems what things can we keep you know, rather than just throwing it all out. Mm -hmm. um, so my next question for you guys is what, you, with this idea of, of permanence, um, with, with publishing your episode, um, what, recognizing that probably lots of has changed, what about your, your faith life perhaps has changed since we talked? I went first last time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know that, my faith life is very erratic, so I don't know that I can like pin down what tangibly changed. Um, but a lot of my faith life is in lived community, whatever that looks like. And I'm at a point where I'm about to be launched out of divinity school and um, all of these things that I've been kind of forming in this safe space of writing in a classroom and talking mm -hmm. to my friends are um, about to be lived in public. And so uh, my faith life right now looks like nurturing myself and trying to figure out how to live this persona in public. Um, and that's kind of difficult. So it's it's been navigating, you know, um, can I share, you know, awards or graduation announcements with my high school, which is Catholic, um, mm -hmm. and engage in that community that I used to find faith and spirituality in um, because most of my work here has been on queer things. Um, so it's been re-navigating my sense of community, I think mm. is most of what my faith life has looked like now. And, you know, if I get a job with a company that is pro-choice, 
can I, um, am I going to get more heat? You know, am I going to get, um, recognized or noticed in mass and asked to not be there? Um, Mm. my faith life kind of looks more high stakes than it did when I did my episode. So my episode, I was kind of bold. I was like, I don't care. I'm out, whatever. And now I still am, but it's tinged with a hint of nervousness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think since the episode, I've had a lot of time to kind of, yeah, like graduating and um, getting out of here, thank the Lord. Um, <laughs> I've loved it, but I've been here way too long. Um, but getting, thinking about future and now having time for um, a more creative space of figuring out, I share a big passion with Greg. I'm, one of the connections I have with Greg is storytelling. Um, and just because, and it all has to do with my family who shared, who were great storytellers. My grandmother was an amazing storyteller. And that is something I have gleaned from my upbringing. Um, and finding a way to weave in my passion for music into this idea of um, storytelling where I think we can discover the divine in people's stories through music in ways where regular words may not um, may not do well. Um, and so I think that has been something very new for me um, and having the space to kind of be creative more. Um, and also I've really gotten in touch with my rural roots and have found a calling to go back, um, which is always surprising for me. I go uh, to this, I always bring in scripture. I'm a Presbyterian and we were taught that scripture is very important. Um, So one of my favorite stories in scripture is the story of the garrison demoniac. And at the end, the, um, the guy in the tombs wanted to go with Jesus after he after the demon is cast out, and Jesus says, "No, you have to go back. You have to go back and tell them what I've done for you." And I have resisted that call for God knows how long. Um, just like I resisted the call to come to Divinity School, and somebody told me like you resist all you can until you can't resist anymore, until the calling is um, front and center. And so I have found. Um, deep spirituality in my rootedness in um, the rural parts of the world. And, and yeah, that's been very surprising ever since the episode. Um, so, yeah, a lot of surprises, um, but it has connected to my upbringing, um, which is kind of awesome, I think. So, yeah. um, I think for me, I am... I'm still very much learning every like three to six months, I'd say I have like a revelatory uh, understanding of, oh, there's a healthier way for me to exist Um, or recognizing something that is unhealthy in my life. Um, And so what initially when I recorded the podcast, um, I was in a place where I was like, I am standing in defiance now where for so long I felt like I have to shut myself off from my faith community 
and now I get to open myself up. But uh, Katie, who's in the audience right now, uh, pulled out quotes from our episodes to put over at the refreshment stand. If you haven't enjoyed it, it's great. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, pulled out a quote that I don't think I even realized was such an encapsulation of what I was feeling in that moment, but I was standing in defiance of, of all the messages I had been told that I did not belong, um, and instead was coming back with, no, I do, and I get to be here, and you get to see the ways that I'm showing God, which I still find to be a very powerful message, but if I'm not also accompanying that with spaces where I don't have to defy to have that, um, then that becomes very exhausting uh, and draining and in an ironic twist uh, puts up more barriers between me and God in my relationship. Um, and so I just, Greg uh, said this and bring me up, I just came back from uh, the Reformation Project Summit, which if you don't know about the Reformation Project, it is a nonprofit organization uh, working towards the full inclusion and affirmation of LGBTQ people in the church. Um, it's very awesome. I was very lucky to be a part of it. But while I was there, I was among just a ton of queer people from diverse backgrounds. Uh, and I got to be in the worship band singing uh, music that I had not felt connected to in so long, uh, which used to be my primary form of connection to God. Um, and being in that space among people who I knew had also been fighting uh, but didn't have to in that space was deeply healing and reconnected me to my faith in a way that I didn't know I needed. And the way I described it was in talking to um, one of the other cohort members who is an electrical engineer, which I am not a science person at all. Uh, I'm in divinity school. Um, But... uh, connected me to a metaphor where I was like, I, I am a, me and God and existence is like a circuit with light bulbs all over it. And most of those light bulbs are flashing, but being in that space and singing and being among those people closed a circuit that I didn't know wasn't closed yet and relit a light that I didn't know I'd been missing for a long time. Um, and so I think that's something that I've, I've learned since my episode is that like, Defiance is important because without it, people just kind of continue on, not knowing that there's another way to be. But I need to also remind myself that there's another way to be and and defy these messages that I've been told that I have to belong in a certain group in order to feel accepted um, when I can find that already. I love that your story of just like reclaiming like the music from growing up and everything and so I'm wondering kind of was there anything for you all about sharing your story that when you looked back or maybe when you listened back to it that you feel like you were able to like reclaim from your past something that maybe you had put away oh I'm the only one that hasn't gone first yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so um and this has been like a process to kind of like reclaim this and I talked a little bit about of it, I think, in the podcast. But um, so my so my thesis was about um, about body image within the queer community, and and I've had 
uh, and still have um, body image issues. And in the past, it was it was pretty it was a lot more extreme than it is now. And I even hit on it a little bit in the podcast, but it was something that I have like kind of put away. Um, and just because like from like where I'm from, specifically if you're a man, you don't talk any, you don't just, you don't talk about stuff like that. You don't talk about your bot, like that's just something you don't talk about. Um, and so it's been something that I haven't really processed in a long time, but in the process of doing my thesis and in the process of this podcast, even like saying it and it's permanent. And um, I think that is something that I have reclaimed and have really found a passion for to speak of embodiment within the queer community um, and body image um, within this community because I think we can do a lot better. Um, and I think we can um, be accepting more and um, yeah, I think that's all I, yeah, it's, I think it's an issue that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, and we see it in all spectrums of specifically now with our color trans siblings and how, and how media portrays what the bo a body should look like, or, um, specifically in gay media where you see white chiseled men and every advertisement, um, and just the perception of what we see as, as our bodies and the embodiment and theologically what that means um, has been something that I have really reclaimed and I'm very grateful for. And it all started kind of with this um, podcast of me actually talking about it again, um, something I didn't talk about for the longest time and really delving into it theologically, um, speaking about... Um, the incarnation and how God wanted to be in relationship with humanity and wanted to be in a body and was resurrected in a real body and God likes the body. Um, and so, and how we can reflect that in our being specifically for each other in our own community. So I think that was very, very helpful for me to reclaim. Um, yeah. So thank you, Greg. Thank you. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, um, it was allowing myself to see my story as complex and unapologetically complex. Um, I recognize that I hold a lot of privilege within the queer community. Um, aside from being tall, I think I check every box <laughs> of privilege. Um, but, and, and so in acknowledging that I'd very much try to give the space to others um, in conversation and in uh, platforms and, and stuff like that. Um, but in having a, a <laughs> an hour, two hour block to just sit down it's and two hours, two hours, <laughs> it was, it was a two hour conversation that got edited <laughs> into 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> which is important. <laughs> um, and to be able to just like look at my own history, um, I think really allowed me to see more nuance in my story. And so the main thing that stands out to me is uh, one moment discussing 
my interactions with my parents around my sexuality. On the whole, I have been very, very fortunate uh, to have parents who have just like loved on me, but it has been a learning process to see how to do that best. And I mean, we're still there. I don't think that ever, I keep coming back to the the theme of like, nothing's ever done, um, which like, <laughs> there's a theological claim for you. Um, but um, reflecting on a moment, and this is such a like, present memory in my mind, but I was in the car with my mom and I asked her if marriage equality was put to a vote right now, what would you vote? And and she said that she would vote against it. And that being such a strong seed that was planted inside of me uh, that I was just scared, so scared for so long. And I, even in light of the fact that I have been very lucky to have parents who have never tried to change me or or force me into a shape that I don't fit in, um, acknowledging that and then being able to share the podcast with my parents and talk about that and have a conversation where we were like, yeah, I, d- I didn't realize that that affected you in the way that it did. Um, and here was my thinking and here's where I've come now. And me being like, I still don't, I think you could be farther. Um, and I think I'll always be doing that because um, Maria is very much about uh, discussions around Southern culture. Um, we're all Southern, just we in are. case you were wondering. Um, and so I think there's there's always elements of that in, in talking with my family, um, which surprisingly is not super Southern because a lot of them come from New York and Oregon, but we've lived in the South for so long that permeates. Um, but being able to have those conversations with my with my parents and claim the hurt that it brought, but also work through it has been really cool. Um, I think the process of the podcast helped me to realize that I was reclaiming femininity um, and working through gender and sexuality and how they interplay for me. It's not lost on me that I'm the only woman on the panel, um, which, you know, is by nature of who's available. But there's a, a in listening to the podcast and thinking through how that impacted me and particularly as a Catholic woman, um, I think so much of, of why I took so long to come out to myself and to other people was because I was um, so focused on performing femininity correctly. Um, you know, I went, I went through high school. I had chopped off my hair. I went through high school being called a dyke and feeling the need to radically fight back against that. Um, and talking through my story helped me piece all of this together and been like, oh, this was really also about my gender. And it still is. I'm married to a trans man. And so part of my queer identity is still about navigating these conversations where people are saying, oh, but you're married, right? And it appears heteronormative and you appear like a normal woman and normal woman. And I have those conversations. I had one this week. Um, talking people through the way that my gender and my femininity play into my marriage and to my queerness um, that like, yes, I'm still attracted to women and folks of all gender and um, what that comes about. So reclaiming gender, reclaiming new definitions of femininity was something that I got to piece through in our conversation. How has the act of sharing your story, um, whether that's something you did since we talked 
in person with somebody or just by sharing the podcast with somebody? How has that connected you to other people? You've kind of started to allude, allude to that in a way, but like, how has that connected you to other friends or family or people you haven't heard from in a while or anything like that? Uh, I shared my podcast episode on my Facebook, which was kind of risky for me. And I had several cousins. I come from a very rural Southern working class family. And I had several cousins reach out in a very positive way about the episode and say like, I had no idea about any of this, but this is great. And I'm so glad I got to learn more about you. Um, and so I was really pleased to have such a like positive experience of, of the podcast reconnecting me with family members who I'd kind of uh, been avoiding without realizing it for for want of not wanting this conversation to come <laughs> up. Um, so, so far it's been great, but I kind of wait for the other shoe to drop, you know. Um, it was pretty neat for me because I got to share my story in a way that I think a lot of my friends had not seen the nuance of. Um, they had seen a lot of like the ways that I tried to fit in and be like a model queer person in conservative spaces, uh, which was intentional on my part, but being able to show them like, here's all the messiness that you didn't necessarily get to see all of, um, was really neat and sparked some cool conversations. And then I think I had two strangers reach out, um, on social media and just message me and, and thank me and let the, let me know how important it was to hear a story that they saw theirs in and that was I cried I cried for sure um but also just so affirming to remind me of the work that I'm doing um I, you have both referenced your thesis I guess or Greg referenced your thesis uh my thesis which is going to be turned in by Friday because <laughs> <laughs> that's the deadline uh, <laughs> is uh, centered on uh, conservative Christian colleges and the shame that they inflict upon their queer students of faith and the active harm that that does and then I address that theologically and take some theological ethical and practical approaches to remedying it um, and being able to hear the stories of people or, or hear that my story is something others can see themselves in is just affirming to me to, to remind myself that like, Oh, this is important. Other people are going through this and, and like, mm -hmm. it doesn't stop just because I'm not in that space anymore. Um, so both like comforting and also like a charge to me to keep going on that. Um, so my family don't even know what a podcast is, so they just don't. We just didn't worry about that part, but um, <laughs> but I think um, I think a lot of I've I've been surprised as to how many people want to talk about the body image um, idea in the queer community. I've gotten a lot of um, response from people who are. Um, concerned and who are interested in that conversation within the queer community, which has been really um, exciting for me um, to start those conversations. And it's not, and I don't want to say it's like, it's not just about physicality. It's not just about fat shaming. It's about racism in the community. It's about classism in the community. It's about ageism in the community. All that is in that, that is within our embodiment. And so it's not just how we look physique, I would say. 
Um, and to have those conversations has been really um, surprising that people are really wanting to talk about it and how to um, continue to make our community more accepting and more inclusive and really looking into ourselves. And so I think that has been really surprising. And um, and I joke about my family not knowing what podcast is. Actually, a couple cousins have listened to it and were, um, were very supportive and they've always been supportive. Um, my, my generation in our family, there's a lot of us and I have a huge family. Um, there's about 20 of us that are the same age. And, um, and they've all been very, very supportive. And so that's been really great to get that affirmation from my family, uh, which is really important to me. But I think people wanting to have those conversations um, to make our community more accepting and more, um, I would say more, just more questioning and saying we need to always be getting better to be more inclusive. So that's been really exciting for me. Yeah. We have time for just a couple of questions um, from the audience. Would anyone like to ask a question? We'll bring the mic to you. Hello. So it can be kind of obvious, or we may think the answer is going to be obvious, but really the question that I had for you is if you could say something to your younger self, whatever age that is, because that too could be different. Right? If you could say something to your younger self, knowing what you know now, what would it be? Don's pulling a RuPaul. You ever seen Drag Race? <laughs> oh my gosh. Just this every finale. <laughs> every finale. <laughs> what would you say to your younger self? <laughs> and they always cry, and I'll probably cry too. <laughs> Um, I still think of myself as my younger self. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hardly 24. Um, but I think I would say you, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Apologies. I'm 23. He's younger than me. Um, <laughs> I would say you know, just like a simple you know. Um, I think I spent so many, you know, uh, when I came out, Nobody was surprised but me. I was the only shocked one. Um, but I think after spending a lot of time thinking about it, I knew from a very young age. And I think if I had spent a lot less time running and a lot less time trying to prove myself, um, I would have been a lot happier a lot sooner. So just a simple, you know. Um, it's actually funny because I just had to print out pictures of me as a child um, for something else. And, um, and yeah, I think I would say um, to, to fully be yourself and, and, it, and, not just any, and not just sexually, like with my sexuality, or, but like claim where you're from and claim – your rootedness and don't be ashamed of how you talk and um, because there were years where I tried to cover it up and it was a lot thicker than what it is now um, but but don't be ashamed of your upbringing and claim your full self um, I think is 
what I would say and claim your body and don't try to manipulate it. Um, eat, eat the damn cake and eat the damn stuff you want to eat um, and be healthy. Um, but claim your full, your full embodiment, I think, is what I would say. Not that I would understand that at four years old, but <laughs> I'd keep saying it, and I tell my nephews that too every time I talk to them. Um, they're nine and six now, and they will hear it from me all the time. And I think, so yeah, if you have nephews, if you had nieces, children, tell them. Um, yeah. I feel like the answer to this question changes as I get older um the other day the other it's like the other day last month um i ended up having to pull out a hard drive of all of my undergrad schoolwork because i needed to find a specific title of a paper to put on my resume and i had no idea what it was um and while i was scrolling through trying to find it i saw some locked word files um that I did not remember writing and I pulled them open uh, and sat on my bed at like 11.30 p.m. sobbing because these were just like small journal entries I had written in my freshman year of college. Um, And the anger and the self-hatred and just the deep sorrow and isolation just wrecked me and to know that um because I've forgotten a lot of that in thankfully being in a much better place um but but reading that and and remembering and, and knowing that I did not think I even deserved to have connection um that I couldn't I could never even like do anything to earn love uh, and therefore I should hate myself because like that's what's required at this point. Um, so I, I think just trying to get the message across of like you deserve love. You deserve to be loved. You deserve to love yourself. Um, and that you can be loved by God. That was, that was, the message that took me the longest to, to hear and to ingrain and to start living into. Um, so I think just telling him that a lot until he broke down crying. Cause that's usually the only way I start to like process things. Um, yeah, just like you can be loved by God. And if you can be loved by God, then you can be loved by anyone. Uh, and even if they don't, then, Fuck him. <laughs> now I have to bleep the show. Thanks. <laughs> oh. The goal. <laughs> we choked about this beforehand. My my episode had a content warning, so we're, we're trying to make it two for two. <laughs> Do you have another question? Okay. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say that I was sitting in feeling so honored to hear your stories, both your original podcast and now tonight. So thank you for sharing. And uh, speaking about how gay time 
like short <laughs> amount of time. It's a long time in gay time. I totally relate. So during your time in divinity school, after sharing the these stories on the podcast like a year ago or so, is there something that has changed for you in your relationship to your faith or God that has surprised you or that you didn't know a year ago um, when you recorded the podcast, something that you may like want to add to that original sharing or story? Um, yeah. go yeah um I think at the time um my faith was very much other centered um very much communal and and in terms of like I don't know I think I felt I needed my faith to be validated by the communities I was in um and so I still very much subscribe to the principle of like relationship with people who disagree with me but um I also recognize that just trying to be nice around people who don't think that I am capable of leadership in the church uh, isn't going to make them think that I'm capable of leadership in the church. Um, And so I think I've realized I need a bit more grit in those relationships. I need to, um, I need to challenge more often. And I think more than anything, I need to bring my pain explicitly into those places uh, because perhaps, I don't know, this is a theory I'm testing out right now, um, but um, perhaps if they recognize that what they're doing um, is causing harm to someone they're in relationship with and not just like abstract harm, but like I can tell you the ways I'm suffering mental harm and the ways that that mental harm has exhibited itself in physical manifestations um and just like make it like lay it out clearly so it's not just like it's been lonely sometimes but like here's like tangible ways you have harmed me and like I'm sorry I have to say it this way but like in order to make it stop (laughs) maybe this is what you need to hear um yeah that's I guess that's the the biggest way I've changed in, in from my maybe more placid approach from the podcast um i would probably say for me i would i think that i've um found a need for a more um a more spiritual grounding for myself um and cultivating ways to do that for my own groundedness um I think it's something that I've didn't think I'd need, but I definitely think I need. Um, I was I kind of fell into like a weird group spirituality thing this past weekend because I was supposed to do the audio, and then they were like, "You want to join?" And I was like, "Sure, I'll join," <laughs> and ended up being a great um, experience for me because I was the youngest person there, so I was surrounded by. Um, people who were older than I was, and I realized how much I missed an intergenerational kind of dialogue, specifically around spirituality. Um, and it was based around storytelling, and so hearing the stories of people I didn't have a clue who they were, um, and how they find grounding in their own spiritual lives and their own spiritual practices, it, it kind of reminded me that I need something of that nature in my life um, to keep me 
um, grounded in a sense. And so that was very surprising. I'm not one to like meditate and I'm not one to um, do things like that. But I, I think I've found it in um, songwriting and that process and not necessarily like the singing or the music part, but like the actual process of songwriting has been very spiritually grounding for me and just kind of putting it into that context. Um, because at one point in my life, it was all very outward, um, doing work out into the world. And at some point, and just hearing the stories of others, like how you can hit a wall and you can become very exhausted and spiritually depleted. And so kind of catching myself on the front end of that and saying, I need to develop something, um, has, was very, and it, that kind of happened this weekend. I was like, damn, this is good. Like I feel, I feel good after this talking to these older people and, um, and the things they used to do and, um, was, was really good. Um, and it's not something that I would have put myself into voluntarily. And I'm kind of glad I kind of fell into it. Um, so, yeah, I think a more more um, spiritual practices for myself, I think, is what I kind of came up, that kind of changed in that. Yeah. Uh, I've been hiding behind academia my whole life. Um, I, yeah, I... Uh, in the past semester, I decided to steer away from the potential of a PhD track and towards whatever else lies in the future, which is very ambiguous at the moment. And um, it really caused me to think about um, how I've kind of been waiting to sneak in the back door of the church or for someone to pull me in, for someone to create space for me, um, for someone to ask me to start leading. Um, and since I've kind of re like shifted my focus and thinking through this podcast, uh, I've realized that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, and that I, I am equipped, um, and that, you know, particularly in, in my tradition as a woman and as a queer person, I'm taught that I'm not equipped to be a person, let alone to be a Catholic person, let alone to be a leader um, in a ministerial context. And so I have had to, I, you know, I think I've done all this unpacking and then I get to another layer and I'm like, oh, I've been waiting for someone to call me in realizing like I have all the skills. I have the, the degree is coming towards me in a few weeks um it's time to put myself in the position I need to be in and to affirm my own skills and leadership and to not just affirm them for me but to realize that there are people out there who need them and that I can legitimately offer uh my ministerial presence in a variety of ways so that has been a, a corner to turn for me um I'll jump in and uh, in the last year, I have really been a bit more open to um, different faith traditions and going to different churches, and I think it um, it really hit home. Um, actually, in, in the it, it kind of came full circle in the in the latest episode that came out last week, where I interviewed Amber Cantorna. She wrote a book called Unashamed that just came out. That's excellent. Um, it's all about coming out 
in the in not in the Catholic in coming out in the in Christianity and um, and just lots of great tips. And one of the things that um, that she talks about is how important it is to have a good affirming church in your life and. Um, and we talk, I think each of us probably have talked at some point about the difference between accepting and affirming. It comes up a lot on the show. And I think for me, I was kind of okay with going to a church in town where I could just show up and leave and I didn't need anything extra, but I really, something clicked in the last year where I was like, nope, I want to go to a church where people recognize me, where, where I know people, where I am known and, and I know other people too. And where if I don't show up, someone says something like, hey, we missed you, but, like, it's genuine about that, and, um, and so I've started going to, um, an Episcopal church in town where that's been, um, where, and I've got some friends here, right, who are my pew buddies, um, and, um, and that's been really great, and so I think for me, it's, it's just been kind of opening myself up to, um, to, different options. And for a long time, I've told myself when people have asked me, what are you going to do after divinity school? I've gotten comfortable saying, I don't know before I say it's this, like I'm going to go into this line of work. And I'm starting to kind of take that on in my faith too. And if people are like, what are you? I'm just kind of getting more comfortable with being like, I don't know. <laughs> and, and let's talk about it. So yeah, I think we had, we have time for one more question. I think there was one more. Um, I guess my question is, um, because we have this experience as queer people and people of faith and those things coming together. And I've definitely heard uh, that perspective of what our faith communities bring to us, the perspective that brings to us, how we bring it into the uh, queer community. Um, but what do we bring to the faith community? What do we as queer people bring as our gifts from our experiences, our perspectives to communities of faith beyond just trying to push them to be more inclusive and affirming? So um, a lot of where I'm turning my research, my work, my thoughts towards um, is spaces of re-sacramentalization for folks of faith who have felt marginalized from the church in whatever respect, um, particularly queer folks. But what I think that skill lends towards my faith communities in general is a sense of the sacred. Um, and the sacred is rooted in humanity and human bodies, um, a kind of breaking down of this, this distancing between God and human person. Um, so I think that that is not only what I'm bringing to queer folks who've been left out of the church, but what queer folks, um, myself and who I'm working with bring to the church is a sense of sacramentality in the human person and the human body. Yeah. And going... Um, and a lot of my research has been and, and kind of querying what the incarnation is and saying that um, if God was in relationship with humanity, then we as we as humans and all of our diversity and all of our um, whatever we lie on the spectrum um, of gender or sexuality or um, race, that that is all encompassing within the incarnation and looking at. Um, Christ, um, I always use the example, I grew up my, going to my grandmother's house and there was always that picture of, of white Jesus with the big blue eyes. It was mass. It was a massive picture of Jesus. The one of the biggest ones I've ever seen. And, um, and how that has been destructive in, um, 
the faith of queer people, people of color, um, if you're not um, a straight a straight white man, how that has been a damaging image of who Christ was and who Christ is in our lives, um, and really deconstructing what that means, specifically as someone who who claims to be a Christian. Um, there's an artist. Uh, it's called it's called the naked pa- the na- naked pastor, um, who has an image of Christ as a transgender person as an Im- image of Christ, as you always see Jesus, Jesus is like, like jacked and like sexy Jesus. We know what it is. Um, and to me, that's problematic because we're looking at the divine and saying, oh, that's what God is. God is a white man who is sexy as hell and has abs and muscles and all these kinds of things. And that's problematic in a sense. And so there's pictures that he's drawn of, um, someone who is larger, a person of color on the cross, a person who is bigger on the cross. Um, and so reimagining, um, and Christ wasn't white to begin with. And so, and so I think for me, that is what I bring is querying who Christ is and was and can be for us, um, as an all encompassing, um, image of humanity and that that is what God wanted to be in relationship with um, and that is the work I hope to kind of continue to do so yeah. um, I think one of the most beautiful gifts we get as queer people is uh, reminding those who are not queer of the sacred nature of in between um, that we get to exist in in something that is marginal um, and that we've been told doesn't exist, that there's, there's polarities, but we, in their words, have chosen to ignore that. Um, but I think there's something really beautiful in claiming that. I mean, like, there's a long history in our faith tradition of honoring in-between spaces. Jesus was an in-between space between humanity and divine. Um, we have um, the uh, kingdom of God being both now and not yet, that we are somewhere in between uh, a, a time being separated from God and a time being in total relationship and solidarity with God. Um, and and there's more examples, but that we get to come into this space and exist as representations of that and remind people that not only does God love us even though we're queer, like we get to show you even more of God because of our queerness, um, because of the ways that we reject how the world has to be and how much more creative can we be in envisioning the way that God can come embody in this world. I would just add that um, I think we all, this is not going to be a surprise, but um, I think we all, in the queer community have our stories to give to our communities. And I think, <laughs> not surprised, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I really think uh, I was thinking about this more today as I was literally writing the conclusion for my thesis and on this topic. And I was thinking about how, um, communion inherent to communion is sacrifice and what each of us who have, um, come out or have come out to ourselves or wherever we are on that path but when we have that story and we've shared it with other people and we've come out to other people we have experienced something vulnerable that is really unique 
um, to us, um, but is not um, a vulnerability that other people haven't expressed to. Like we, we have a story that is in our pocket that like most people when they come out or most people that you know that identify as LGBTQIA+, you can, you can probably ask them what was coming out like. I, I get that question a lot. And that's a space to enter into some vulnerability and to invite for some deeper reflections with other people. When I, when I started coming out to people and my f- friends and family, I, I did it one-on-one with all these people because I just wanted, because it, once I did it one-on-one with one person, I was like, I need to have this conversation with everybody because it just unlocked all these other things going on in their lives too. And I learned struggles that other people were having with their faith, struggles that people were having um, being divorced and just all these other ways that all of us feel a little bit marginalized in our communities. And if we can take our, our little story and share it with other people, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that one queer story, but it can just be a story of vulnerability that can become a, a universal story of vulnerability that we all need a little more space for. Um, Sam, so yeah. um, we'll go ahead and end the Q&A and I'm going to wrap things up for us. I just have a couple of announcements and then we'll wrap. I just want to thank a bunch of wonderful people who made tonight possible. Um, to everyone on the panel, to Maria, Zach, and Lee, thank you. Um, and to all of the guests that have been on the show previously. Um, and I want to say thanks to Will and Dr. Perkins for helping with sound, um, to Katie Minnis and to Nate Partee for helping set up, and um, and also to Alice Pub for um, the wine and cheese offerings that they provided as well. Please linger to get to know each other, and um, I just want to close this with a um, with a closing poem from Padre Gotuma. And I said to him, "Are there answers to all of this?" And he said, "The answer is in a story, and the story is being told." And I said, but there is so much pain. And she answered plainly, pain will happen. Then I said, will I ever find meaning? And they said, you will find meaning where you give meaning. The answer is in a story, and the story isn't finished. Thank you. Thank you once again to everyone who made this live panel possible and to all who attended as well. I had such a fun time and hope to get together again like that soon. And if you want to follow any of our panel guests, you'll find their social media links in the show notes per usual. Out Loud is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, and is hosted and edited by me, Greg Thompson. You can learn more about the show at outloudstories.com and on Facebook and Instagram at outloudstories. And you can help support the show by contributing monthly to our Patreon page, which gets you access to exclusive unedited episodes of the show. Just visit patreon.com slash outloudstories. On the show next time, we will hear from Damien Domenak. Please share the show with someone as a way to start a conversation. Thank you for listening. Go in peace.